0: Hello and welcome to the Animation Club podcast. This is a Q&A featuring Barry Purvis. Please note that these Q&As were recorded across 2020 and 2021 during the COVID-19 pandemic. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. Goodbye for now. Hi everyone. So um, this is a third Q and, live Q&A with the Tape Animation Club online. Um, we've got um, animator, director and writer um, Barry Purvis with us today, um, and he has over 40 years of experience in film, TV and theatre. Hopefully everyone's. Uh, hopefully we get a few more tuning um, yeah, uh, in, I know I've introduced you, but if you want to introduce yourself a bit more uh, detail for us and then we'll get some questions.
1: Okay, um, well thank you to everybody who's here at the moment. Um, We've got a sunny day in Manchester, so it's sunny where you are today. Um, You're yeah. coping with lockdown. People seem to have um, used this time to be quite creative. Uh, I should have been clearing out cupboards and everything, but I've written a short film, which hopefully will go in production soon. But I should have been clearing out cupboards. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in my room. As Sam said, I've been doing this business for 40-odd years. Um, I've got a lot of storyboards, a lot of stuff piled away that I really must uh, sort out. Yeah, so 40-odd years, and you know what? I've loved every minute of it. I think I've been lucky enough to work more days than I haven't worked. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been lucky enough to work on children's films, feature films. Uh, long-running series, my own short films, done a fair bit of teaching. Uh, I've written three books, um, but so I'm a grand age of 65. Sorry I have to think about that. 65 at the moment, and I'm I'm not finishing. I'm certainly. Uh, I would love to do one more short film, and I'd love to do a feature film, direct a feature film because I've. I feel that's what's missing from my CV at the moment. Yeah, I'd love to do something. I got involved with one a few years ago. I wrote, I was asked to write a feature film and it all went a bit odd and I never got paid for it. So (laughs) there's a feature film waiting ready to go. Um, I think what what I want to do with the feature film is just spend a bit longer with the characters. Um, Most of my short films are 11 minutes or 14 minutes or something and invariably the characters die at the end or or something tragic happens to them. I'd like to spend a bit more fleshing out the characters and having them in different situations. Um, I love doing TV series um, for that very reason. Um, TV series you can't really develop the characters but you can different situations over the weeks I think the longest TV series I worked on was twirly woos that was about three four years ago we did a hundred episodes that's a lot of television by any yeah. any stretch and I, I loved it I really loved twirly woos it was a technical challenge mm. putting stop-motion into um, but it was the companies involved were so well organized and everybody had done so much homework, it, it, it worked. Um, but I think one of the harder shots we did was um, two, twir- two twirly-wees were sitting on a live-action saddle of a horse that was jumping over fences. And we had to try and match the action of the batting saddle with the twirlies. That was um That wasn't easy.
2: I imagine that. um,
1: You know, we love these challenges. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, Sam. I was just saying. I imagine
0: that was difficult. And as you say, um, it's that's one of the pluses about animation. There was a element of problem solving and challenging yourself,
1: isn't it? Uh, We love problem solving, and um, actually, usually the answer is the most simple. Mm. I did a play last year um, called The Brontes and I did an effect in it, that drew a gasp from the audience every night and it was so easy, it was such a simple device, it was um, Emily Bronte um, had, had died and she had written apparently a second novel and Charlotte mm. found it after her death and burnt it, so it's a, quite an emotional thing. And I thought, how do I visualize the emotional impact of this? And she, she literally ripped up random pieces of paper and we put a fan on the floor and a red spotlight. And suddenly these papers, rather than fluttering down, shot up to the sky, to the flies above in this dazzling red. Yeah. And it, it drew a gasp every night, and it even got a review in the local paper. <laughs> the astonishing effect of the destruction of the second 2nd manuscript. It, it was so easy. And I, I know technical people love to invent things. They love technical toys and new ways of doing it. But just see if you can touch every simple solution first. Um, it's, it's, uh,
0: um, it's amazing the sometimes. That it's yeah. Right. Well, yes. Sorry. Um, I, I don't think I mentioned it before. There is a bit of a delay with um, us talking to each other and with what the audience is seeing. So, just in case anyone's getting a bit confused, I'm going to try as hard as I can not to talk over Barry, but uh, there's a bit of a delay.
1: <laughs> we'll, we'll try and do it visually. As well so do we have anyone here
0: and um, we've got at least three people watching it doesn't always tell us everyone that's watching but we've got at least three people watching but, hello uh, yeah. to
1: you three people it would be lovely to know it would be lovely to know where you are you three people um, and what we what we you would like to talk about um, talking of simple things let's give an example Um The first TV series I worked on was Children and the Wheelies Mm. for Cosgrove Hall. So this would have been about 1978, long before anyone was born. They wanted to produce a series that was very quick, very energetic Mm. and had a high impact. And um, they had a lot of characters and rather than walking them around, they put them on wheels and they became the wheelies. You didn't have to worry about magnetizing them to the floor or screwing them to the floor. They had three wheels um, and you could literally just shove them along and get a lot of lot of instant animation. And in the same series there was Fenella, uh, the wicked witch. She was a Welsh wicked witch, so I apologize to the Welsh. <laughs> um, and they wanted her to have a particular way of moving. And again, we sort of, evo- well, the um, Cosgrove Hall avoided having to walk her from one place to the other. And she literally just popped down to the ground and popped up somewhere else. And it was a series of about four replacements that she she disappeared and then mm-hmm. reappeared. And it became so effective. And it was a way of thinking, how can we... We can't, haven't got time to make this character walk. Time and money and schedule and all that. So, what do we do? And she disappears and popped up, and it was so effective. And and she had her own sort of music attached to her disappearing. And um, but you know, think of, think outside the box. Uh, this, what often worries me with young animators is they get too literal. Animation is so artificial. Let's enjoy that artifice in the design of the puppets, in the staging and the music and the sound. Um, You know, so often I go to places and they've built a character and they're building the sets of a lovely living room. So, so much detail. But once they start shooting, they haven't secured the living room, and it's wobbling all over the place. And and you know, I I, I would sort of ask, what's important in that scene? It's the character. You don't need all that all those trappings. You, you know, I think I'm used to working with budgets that are very small, um, and I try only to make things that are important to the story. Or and um, I try and make everything contribute to the film. If it doesn't contribute, then it's not there. It's not there. You want to say something, Sam? <laughs> uh, I
0: was just going to say that's um, some really good advice there, and um, and I, I see what you mean as well, like with uh, next and plume, where there's minimal to no set almost in in plume. And you're concentrating on the characters themselves. Um, and yeah, you, you're focused on okay. them then. Sometimes, well, uh, I think, as well in Tchaikovsky, uh, using the projection um, idea as well was fantastic. So instead of having to build all the set things, the effectiveness of being able to change it so dramatically with the projection um, was a really good idea.
1: Well, okay. Let, let. Let's talk about those two films. Let's talk about Plume first. Mm -hmm. Um, I was given a budget, it was a a good budget, and I shot it in France. Um, But I wanted the challenge I set myself was could I tell a dramatic story with no set, no costume, no culture, cultural Mm. references? Could I basically tell a story with essentially one puppet in a pool of light and i think i i like that challenge maybe maybe i'm having a reaction to CG. that is i mean cg is wonderful and extraordinary but it's so much you look at some film today and it's so overproduced. you don't know where to look sometimes and things um uh, I thought, Plume, I wonder if I could make an elegant dramatic film with one puppet. I see the were a few other puppets lurking in the shadows. But, um, and the producers and I, we did have this discussion about should there be a geography? Should there be a broken temple, for example, a ruined temple? Or should he be wearing a costume? And I thought, no. He's got to have nothing because he's a sort of metaphor. Um, and as soon as you put a costume on, you have to decide what costume because any piece of costume says something about the character. And I wanted this character to be neutral uh, so people could put their own understanding on it. Um, and I. I I made a decision, either we go the full works and we have temples and rivers and clouds and all, we have nothing. And I quite like that we had nothing and it works. I had to be careful with camera moves because there was a character against black and, if, for example, if he was kneeling and we had a, a zoom or camera move, it would have looked as though he was sliding on the floor because there was nothing to reference just in a black void. Um, So I had to be very careful in the storytelling that the audience knew exactly where they were. We did that Mm. with lighting. There was a very definite side lighting. And if there was a top top, shot, I put some scattered feathers on the floor so there was something solid and there is a journey in the film of Plume um, and the, the winged character is always on the right of frame and the shadowy characters are always on the left of frame and that way the audience knew the geography when there was no geography. <laughs> I, I was literally a room covered in black velvet and um, some of the, the lighting is quite dim and much of the lighting is caused by the wings illuminating of the character and uh, this was this was 10 years ago so I was 55 then my eyes were okay but in a dark room you know 8 hours a day focusing on the eyes sort of feet in front of you um I I couldn't do it, so I had to wear a bind helmet that I would switch on and I could see the character clearly. Having to switch it off again became you know, became something. Um The Wings I, I don't know if anybody has seen the film, but the wings it's about a character with wings who has the wings ripped from him. The wings are illuminated. And um We assumed, and we had some wings from a dove, uh, first of all, and they were too small. Then we had some wings from a duck, and they were fantastic. And we assumed, very wrongly as it happened, that if you put ultraviolet on white feathers, they will, you know, they will shine. Ultraviolet made no effect at all. So we were in France in a tiny village, and there was one supermarket, um so we went to find some detergent or um something that could clean white fabrics uh or we found some net cleaners and the wings were so detailed um i didn't want to touch them um they were real wings so i brushed every feather with this cleaning stuff trying not to mess the the natural order of the feathers and anyway, we stood back and put the ultraviolet on. Bang! <laughs> God oh, wow. knows what was in the fabric cleaner. <laughs> but it, um, much of the lighting in the film is caused by the reflection of the wings. Um, so I don't know what chemical was in the waste at all in the in the cleaning stuff. But um, yeah, it was a challenge that film. I wanted it to to make it a cross between a a ballet and a rugby scrum. <laughs> mm. um, and there were no words, it's all told to music again which is a challenge and I often when I teach I often talk about structure and preparation and, uh, and I look at my some of my films and the structure is there is structure but it's a bit woolly or a bit fluid. Mm. Uh, Plume has a textbook structure Absolute textbook structure, three acts in 13, 14 minutes. Um, and the first act, you know, even if you have a one minute story, try and think of the three acts. Um, the, the first act in Plume is the man he wants to fly. Simple as that. that he flies, that's what defines him. End of story. His wings break. He can't fly. That's the end of Act One. So we've got a problem. Act Two, he crashes to the ground, tries to fly again, but there are problems. And there are these shadowy characters creating obstacles. They want the feathers. They used to fly, and they're trying to steal the feathers. So there's all this conflict and drama and um he can't fly but that's what he does he flies um act three he resolves um the shadowy figure i've got rid of um and he finds a way to move forward in in that he he is flying but he's not he's he's learnt to swim which is essentially flying but different and some of the movements are the same that he used when he was flying so Three acts there. He's set up his world complicated it and resolved it and I'm quite glad I did that because for, for once one of my films has a good structure that I can I can demonstrate mm. um, I usually have a, th- a thing I like to do and again, I would recommend to everyone is think about the world you're creating and limit it to storytelling. Uh, The, my film of Achilles, it would have been very easy to go all Jason and the Argonauts and again have ruined temples and boats and everything. Budget didn't allow that. So I thought, I've got a Greek chorus. All I need to use to tell this story are masks and shields, that's Mm. it. That's that's absolutely it. And when you watch the film, it doesn't look as though there's limit. Um, in Tchaikovsky, I've got more or less empty stage, with as you say, projections. The problem with Tchaikovsky is too well, I, only had, I only had thirteen minutes. But how do you tell his story without mentioning all the other characters? And a lot of mistake people make when they're writing the script is they write 20 characters in yeah. in a short film the producer will hate you if you build a puppet that has one line to say you yeah. spent all that money and he ended up one line. can you give that line to somebody else or can you find another way of telling that piece of information and i thought how do i represent sort of a dozen or so people in Tchaikovsky's life when I've only got time to give them 10 seconds or so. Yes. So, we found, I found some early photographs of Tchaikovsky and I thought, ah, he was around at the beginning of photography. How about we project images, we project letters, we project things. That saves having to build a physical puppet but it also works because it becomes a mind, it becomes in his mind and his imagination. And it really worked for the film. I I do believe um, you have to be economical. My first Mm -hmm. script for Tchaikovsky, (laughs) I've got it somewhere, is um, I was going to do it all in one take and I had this idea of him sat at a piano, and the set sliding past, and it slipped past. It was another visual representation of life. And, and as he was telling his life story, he was ripping off all his clothes. And I had this idea, a very Ken Russell idea, that he was going to lie naked on his piano and a sheet would come down and he would be lying in state at the end of the film. That would have been so hard. I don't know what the puppet would have been like when I finally got his clothes off. After three months of filming, the puppet would have been all squashed and dirty. And there are shoes. Shoes are always an issue. I don't have a naked body with shoes on, and taking shoes off a puppet is very difficult. Um So I thought, well, I like the piano idea because that's what defined him, um. But Can I afford to build a piano? No, I can't afford to build a piano. Um, So I'll have a music score and he's conducting. Ah, if I don't have a piano, he can get up, he can move around. He doesn't have to sit down the whole time. He can dance, he can conduct, he can move. Heck, the piano's gone. And, you know, we saved a lot of money. And it worked for the film. It became much more... Fluid, in his imagination he could go from one scene to the other by if i'd have a piano i would have to sit down stand up move away from the piano sit down and um in the end he he ended up playing air piano yeah. and um i people remark that the piano playing looks very accurate um mm-hmm. he was playing he was playing the real notes if they were there um whenever there was a piano scene
0: oh sorry i was just saying that is my favorite bit about tchaikovsky when i watched that for the first time i think i saw it when you premiered it at bradford and um as soon as i saw that bit i was just i was like oh that's just crazy how how you've (laughs) achieved that
1: well well, I can't really play the piano, but I can read music. Mm. And we had the score from the music. Um, and whenever there was a piano scene on film, I drew where the keyboard should be, and I drew where middle C was, so I could work out where the hands should be. And a trick that i um, happy to pass on, um, when he pressed a key that wasn't there, I made the finger bend and take the hand past the finger, so it looks as though the finger was was um, touching the key. There was some resistance, but there was no key there at all. Um, the it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> uh, back in winter Windows days, uh, Ratty had to play the piano. And there was a song in an episode called The Great Steamer. And I think the script was a bit underwritten. So Ratty sang the song called We'll Go Boating, 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 We'll Go Boating once again. And we had about four minutes of the song that took the episode up to 20 minutes. Um, Now, there's a lesson, a good lesson here. Our designer had made this beautiful reproduction of a Victorian piano. But it wasn't friendly for Rat. (laughs) It should have been slightly modified to to cope with Rat who had a very big muzzle. So when he played the piano he had to turn his head to one side, so he wasn't nose to nose to the piano. Perhaps the keyboard should have been widened a bit to accompany this. He also had a very big stomach and short arms, and he only had three fingers. <laughs> and I was determined to play the piano accurately, um, which is quite hard when he's only got, doesn't have enough fingers. So I think the lesson there is work with your designer, um, try and say what is needed out of the prop. Yes, mm. Ratty has to play the piano. It doesn't just have to look good. He has to look at his anatomy and thinking, is that Ratty friendly? Can he can he stretch to all the lengths of the keyboard? Yeah. So I think a designer has to find a balance of a credible piano and something that belongs in the world of those animals. Um, mm. and I think on Windows, we did have tiny little magnets in the keys that let the keys stay down, which was a nice touch, but, but um, yeah, the Tchaikovsky piano playing, my day on the Tchaikovsky film was, we'd start filming about 9 o'clock, finish about 6, I'd go for a swim, and then I'd come home and learn the music for the next day. <laughs> Again, okay, I'm, I'm giving out all these lessons, sorry if I'm sounding like a teacher. I think a great secret, (laughs) a great secret in animation is not just to think of the frame you're animating, but to think where the puppet will be in 12 frames or a second. Um, And particularly when playing the piano, I had music and I could see that on frame 12, I was pressing C for example, but on frame 36, I was pressing G in another key. I've got to al- allow enough frames to get to that G in time. Yeah. So you've got to think ahead. When do I start to move? When do I start, and then move move it? So you always have to think like a dancer on stage. When they do a jump, they're thinking where they're going to land. You know, a second later, have they got enough space? within the frame of the stage. Think ahead. Think of what the next move is. The next move is always is actually the most important move rather than the one you're doing. Um, and that can be frustrating when you're working with agencies and advertising or producers who perhaps aren't quite savvy to the animation technique.
2: Um,
1: you know, sometimes you can do a move and it can be a big move. And you have a producer sat behind you going, oh, did you mean to do such a big move? Because the last one was smaller. And you go, yes, because the next move will be smaller. And so the move is slower down. Like music, like singing, like writing a word, it doesn't make sense until you put the next word next to it. And an animation, if you do a big move, you can get away with huge moves if perhaps the next one is smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, You know, when you construct a sentence, Jane Austen, for example, she wrote enormously long sentences and she teased the audience by only giving you the sense of the sentence in the last word. So you have to stay with her as she does all this complicated grammar. Then... She lets you have what the, where it was all going. So always think, think ahead. Um, always think ahead. Does that make sense?
0: It, it does. That makes a lot of sense. It's something that I think about with um, some of the animation club as well. Sometimes they are too busy in the moment that they're doing, and you think, well, what's what's gonna, where's where's it gonna come to? What's happening next? And it's a good bit of advice. Sorry, I'm just yeah. And the, There is a question, Um, Andrew Congers has asked, uh, is Plume the first film that you intertwined with CGI?
1: Okay, Uh, CG, I guess came in uh, 1995 and we've used it in Rigoletto. There's a tiny bit of misproduction. Um, There's some mist floating in some of the sets and um, making it look very dank and and wet and messy. And the guy in the post-production, he actually took some smoke against Black and stretched it out in CG and really stretched it out so it had a a weight and a level to it.
2: Mm.
1: And I thought that was brilliant, (laughs) absolutely brilliant. And actually in a commercial, I did for Woolworths clothes. Um, The idea was there were some children and they were interacting with uh, children made out of clothes. And it was an autumn season of clothes. And um, we had thousands of leaves on the floor. And I was shooting from above. And I thought it would be nice to finish with fireworks. And we'd got a million buttons. Um, I was animating these buttons to be like exploding fireworks. My knees were killing me. Then we took it into post production, and the editor said, If I press this button, we can have to have 50% image on the previous frame. Mm-hmm. I went, wow. <laughs> and the fireworks looked as though they were fading. And, cool. and so I started to think, Oh, that's fair. You know, we got double the amount of firework from buttons and things. So it was just, I, I like, um, I don't, probably never do CG films. I think I'll I'll use CG to uh, complement things. Mm-hmm. And obviously rig removal. And in um, two early movies there was a lot of CG. But Plume, well, okay, here's a story about Plume. Um, I had to sit in front of a panel of five French people and I had to explain the last act to um, to them because it was a stop motion film, and the budget was for stop motion technique. And they said, "Why are you going to shoot the water scene in CG?" And I thought this is the first time in my career I've had to <laughs> defend not using stop motion because um, you know, I was I always wanted to use stop motion. And people are usually saying, why don't you use CG? In this example, it went the other way. And my answer was, he had to have traveled somewhere that was same but different. Mm. Um, so the world I learned to swim sort of looked the same, but it was different. So that was the reason. And also because he was in water and we wanted hair to be rippling. So it was a... Aesthetic choice. Well, actually, actually here we go. This is this is what this meeting's about. Plume was written, I guess, as a result of a trauma. My mother died, and I thought, how do you carry on? And mm-hmm. you know, my answer as I've just said is you find the same but different. You you are different after an event, but you have to find joy in that difference. But also I just worked on Mars attacks when I wrote this film. And Mars Attacks went from stop motion to being CG. And I thought, I'm going to have to adapt. I'm going to have to find the joy in CG. Um, As it happened, plume and 16 years later. And it it was sort of like acknowledgement of um, slightly delayed acknowledgement that, uh, yeah, I'm open for CG. you know they can the techniques. It's it's what is right for the film. Yeah. Um, stop motion was right for the first half of the film, and it was. And CG was right for the second half of the film. Um, but, you know, I think you have to really question which technique you use. Stop motion is great for texture and physicality. And performance and touching it. Um, But there are some things, you know, I would never attempt to make a stop motion film about 20 jellyfish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It would be crazy because you'd never be able to get the squishiness of the jellyfish or anything. Mm -hmm. So you have to, uh, and you know, the Mars Attacks thing, Um, I think they lost something by not going stop motion, but Mm -hmm. they gained an awful lot. They gained in numbers. They gained the fabric, they gained in the wet skin, wet eyes. Um, you know, because in some scenes there are hundreds of Martians running around. That would have been hard for us. Yeah. Um, but I think perhaps, perhaps they lost a bit of the 1950s feel, 60s feel that is inherent in the cards. I don't know. We'll never know. And it doesn't matter. It, doesn't matter. it was made and it's a good movie.
0: Um, I heard to you now. Oh, thank you. Um I heard uh there's quite an interesting thing on YouTube where uh, a load of professionals in the CG special effects um industry are looking at good and bad CGI and saying why it's good and bad and a lot of the reactions to the bad stuff is mainly because like you said before, it's it's overproduced so it's um cheaper. They're, they're trying to get more done the cheaper instead of like with um jurassic park still holds up to this day i think with the cgi but that's because there's yeah. only if you look at it it's only about five minutes really collectively of cgi in it and um and it's uh but they concentrated on that and um, but now like if you looked at jurassic world most of it is CGI and they've done the whole film and they've had to get it done in a set amount of time so it's very um, rushed almost and spread out Okay,
1: Okay, let me plant an idea Several ideas about CG When you make a CG film you can make it with people all around the world When you work with a stop-motion crew, They have to all be in the same room together Mm. There's something nice about the camaraderie of working on a stop motion film. But um, here's a, here's an idea that's quite deep. When you're with stop motion now, you know it's a part. It. And that is part of the technique. And if you look at the end of um, Box Trolls, is it Box Trolls or? Um, one of the Leica films where the two characters are saying what if we were in an animated film and you see that they're being animated by these hands and people love they love the trick of stop motion, the audience know it's a trick they know it's a trick when you look at drawings you know it's a drawing and yet you go along with the trick and you know Wallace and Gromit are plasticine and yet for those that 90 minutes, you believe them. You absolutely believe them. You are part of the trick, and part of you is saying, "This is lump of, just a lump of plasticine," but they're making me laugh. They they're getting away. They're crossing the limit of the technique. Um, they're playing with the technique. If Wallace and Gromit, if for example, um, Gromit. Oh, uh, no, Wallace, suddenly got up and started to fly. Um, animation is good when it flirts with the limits of the technique. Um, if you had a ballet dancer and you watch her jump high and you go, oh, my God, how does she do that? But if you saw her jump high and she was lifted up on cables, mm. i go, oh. That's not the same, you know. Yeah. You want you want to be aware of a technique and push that technique. You want a singer to go as high as they can, but part of you is going, "Oh my God, she's got the same voice, you know, same mechanics as me." And yet, where's that voice coming from? If you suddenly auto tune it and it, it goes up thirty decades, you know, you know, more um, octaves, you go. Oh, that's not so special, and I think you have to to do magic. You have to have limits, and what I worry about with CGs, they've taken those limits away, and it doesn't become special anymore. Um, that's that's nobody's fault. There's, it's not the fault of the artists or the technicians. It's just it's so easy to make somebody fly now. Yeah. Um, but in the days when Christopher Reeve in the very first Superman movie, you know, it wasn't a trick, it it wasn't um CG, but he's standing in his ice cave and he leans forward and he flies right across the camera. You think, "Mm, (laughs) Happen, and it's a trick, but that is him, that is actually him flying. Um, now you know you look at all the superhero movies and you think no that's a CG doll doing some of those stunts I I think you know Tom Cruise he does all his own stunts and they obviously have to be filled in a way to let you know that is actually Tom Cruise hanging out of an airplane (laughs) Um, even though he has a harness on that's him banging on the side of the airplane so you have to tell the audience what the limits are and oh my god we're flirting with crossing these limits um but once you cross once you cross the limits of the technology i sort of switch off really Mm -hmm. um and we were talking about projections and i sort of have a love-hate relationship with um projections um you go to, if you see all these TV shows with these big LED screens or theater things with LED screens, and for example, a, a panto with a big LED screen and it goes from Cinderella's kitchen and it just dissolves to the ballroom. I go, no, I want to see a physical transformation. That mm. is what's exciting. I know I'm sat in a theatre space. Play with those limits okay a real example of what I'm talking about and um, I think this is important because it's the very nature of animation is pulling a rabbit out of a hat on on stage a magician how that trick works is a magician has to show you the hat is empty and then without walking off stage or without putting it behind his back pulls a rabbit out of the hat. He does it in one take as it were. Too often, if that was done on film, they would show you the empty hat. Then they would cut to a member of the audience going, ooh, and then cut back, and he's pulling a rabbit out of the hat. And me, I would say, that's cheating. <laughs> You've just, in the edit, you put a rabbit in the hat. I want to see that rabbit coming out of what I thought was an empty hat and do you remember the film The Prestige Mm. which was about Victorian illusionists and they did a very famous trick but they did it with CG and I'm going no if if the Victorians could do it with mechanical sleight of hand you know, without cutting away yeah we, we should be able to do it and I think We all love practical effects, because I know there is cheating, but it's less cheat than CG. Um, I I, I, I love stage effects, and I'm just going to tell you a very quick story about the most amazing stage effect I've seen in my life. We have a theatre in Manchester called The Royal Exchange, and it's in The Round um and there are seven entrances which are just normal sized doors and then they've got this big flat playing arena underneath are shops so they can't have trap doors and overhead they can fly things but about 25 years ago they did Moby Dick and in the run-up to um, the show all the papers were saying so, are you going to have a whale? You can't have a whale at that theatre. And they said, come and see. And I went to see it. And I looked at the floor and thought, well, there are no trapdoors. There's just a bit of canvas painted like ships' floorboards. And you can't fly in a whale, that would be silly. You can't bring a whale through the door because it would have to be in pieces. So how the hell are they going to do a whale? On film, of course, you'd have a CD well, but this was theater where you're looking at an empty space, bare boards, basically, and act one finished with them saying, there she blows, and you heard this rumbling, and thought, oh my God, where was coming, and I was beyond excited. And then act two started with an empty stage, just some dry ice, and these sailors started rowing miming road there was no boat or anything and suddenly the sound got and this whale appeared and my jaw hit the floor i was so angry that i'd never thought of that and all they'd done was inflate this piece of floor cloth and you just got a suggestion of a hump of a whale and it took the sailors up on its back and i thought that that is why I do what I do. That was utter, utter genius. It wasn't literal, It, but you thought you saw, you got the sense of the scale of the whale. There was no eyes or anything, but it was all in the imagination of the sound, the music, the lighting, the choreography. It's the same with War Horse. I always talk about War Horse. Somehow the War Horse puppets are, More convincing than any of the puppets that uh, any of the CG in Steven Spielberg's film, Mm. and you can see the operators, but you believe those puppets. It's about asking the audience to supply part of the story, Mm. so that it becomes a shared experience. Those puppeteers, when they come on with the puppet war horse, are saying, "Well, they've told the audience we're going to be using puppets. We've seen." Birds on sticks and things so you know the language and you get familiar with the visual language and when the horse comes on it's so right it's so right um, and the operators are designed in the color that matches the horse the operator looking at, uh, operating the head never takes his eyes off the horse's eyes ever and Something happens. That is when illusion happens in a film. You've got CG horses and you go Yeah, it's mm. not special <laughs> yeah.
0: It's, it's, it's
1: convincing happen. but it's not special. It's not
0: um, I was going to come on to war horse and I, I thought you'd mention it as well yourself and um, it, It's that thing isn't it you you get invested in it because you can see the skill and the craft in it um, as well as the illusion and um, and I think you I don't know whether you saw it or you shared it but there's also a King Kong stage show where it's a similar thing they've got a giant yes of King Kong.
1: yes yeah the, the thing about all these techniques and it applies to animation mm. is you must tell the audience the language you're using um, For example, in Achilles, the first image is a shaft of light on a piece of armour on the floor, and my Greek chorus come out of the shadows. So you think, ah, we're being very theatrical, we're using light to tell the story. And sure enough, all the way through, light is telling story. You need to, rather like an overture in a musical, you need to bring the audience into the world and you need to be very clear on the visual language that you're going to use. Um, You know, like Plume, the character is always on the right. I can't break that convention because otherwise the geography will get confused. So find out the conventions to tell your story and stick with them. Um, You know, try and have a color palette for each scene. Or if one character has a, you know,
2: we're,
1: we're dealing with artifice, so it's okay to have color schemes in certain scenes. You know, Wagner, 120 years ago, he had a, you know, a light motive for every character, so that if Siegfried was thinking of Brunnhilde, somewhere in the orchestration, you would hear Brunnhilde's tune. You know, don't be frightened of that. Don't be frightened of using all the elements in filmmaking and animation to tell the story. You know, the the amazing uh, Schindler's List, and the use of the red coat in um, you know in the concentration camp, and it's all grainy, black and white, and then there's this soft red that's not realistic that doesn't happen in real life but oh my god was it powerful you know the your job as a director is to tell the audience where to look and you use that you do that light lighter color composition music choreography you have to you know it's all fine and well us making films for ourselves um but we have to make a film for an audience. And you can be obscure, but it has to be there. All the information has to be there. And, and I think, particularly when we're making short films, we can't waste any time. Um, we've got to set up the conventions. We've got to set up the characters straight away. So and I'm probably my films, I'm guilty of being very dense. Everything is saying something, everything is there for a reason, just because I've only got 30 minutes to tell a film. And, you know, people criticize me saying, oh, you have to concentrate in your films. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> it's only 13 minutes. I expect you to watch every frame because every frame is telling the story and I'm not going to apologise for that. I don't, you know, I won't make it um, deliberately obscure, or indulgent. But it, the information is there if you concentrate. Short so films are a, a totally different. Yes. Sorry, Sam.
0: Oh, sorry, no. I was just going to say um, that also helps with if you're watching one of your films, you could probably see something different every time, it's something you might have missed, and key. As well, if if someone's not paying attention fully, they might catch something again and go, oh, I didn't notice that before. Or,
1: Okay, well, it probably is no surprise that my favorite director is Hitchcock. Um, mm. And he's quite artificial. And he doesn't worry about rear projection not being convincing. <clears throat> but why I like him is every camera angle has been considered. Every piece of jewelry has been considered. Every shadow across the character's face is there for a reason. And he thinks about this in story. He does all his work in the story with the artists. And he's often said the filming is the least interesting bit. That must be tough for the actors because they have to be, do what he wants. But he has considered. The Birds is probably my favorite film and it's a masterpiece of composition and um, the way Tippi Hedren as Melanie Griffiths, uh, Melanie Daniels, sorry. Um, she's always seems to be in a cage. She's behind a post office grill or she's in a phone box or she's seen through a window. And Hitchcock is saying she's this bird in a cage. And then when she gets loose, oh what damage she causes <laughs> but it, it's these little it's these little conceits these little conventions that I think you have to think about you have to make every frame count it costs a lot of me and to make every frame count and I'm sorry I'm sounding like a boring teacher now yeah. you have to do your homework yeah. stop-motion particularly is expensive and you don't want to get onto a studio floor and go um, what are we going to do today now how are we going to do this sorry you have to know what you're going to do you have to walk out in front of the crew and have the answers that's your job as a director is you have to have the answers you're the only one that has the whole picture of the film in your head um, the costume lady wants to know why that costume is red you can tell her she doesn't need to know about the whole film she just needs to know why that costume is red so you have to have the answers particularly as things are often shot out of sequence mm. or you will shoot a run of close ups together or you will shoot a run of wide shots together you have to have the whole picture in your head and you can only do that by doing your homework doing that storyboard, looking at it day in, day out. You know, it's very easy now, and I get sent maybe half a dozen short films every day from students who've got an app on their phone and they're moving Lego around. And I go, that's absolutely brilliant, and I'm so thrilled you're enjoying stop motion. But if you did a bit of planning, <laughs> mm. I, I always see a short film, I can always tell they get bored after an hour <laughs> and rush the last action you know they, they start with of characters and then they just throw it together at the end and i thought if you just spent an hour doing a bit of planning doing a bit of a few drawings or something you'll get a better film and i think in, in the end that's what we all want is a, a good film um you can have spontaneity in the film my film screenplay which was worked out to the frame because it was all done in one take um, i say it was worked out to the frame but what was worked out it had this very complicated choreography of screens and things but i knew for example that the wedding scene was 35 seconds long but when i came to the action of that wedding i did it you know spontaneously but I knew I had to do a certain amount of plot in 35 seconds and then the set had to move so it was all planned but allowing for a bit of spontaneity and of course when you're working with puppets you can't tell a puppet what to do yeah. and that's the biggest mistake people think a, a puppet you giving, you're giving it a life you've got mm. to respect that life and what I mean by that, you set up a shot and you've got it in your head that he's got to be somewhere by frame 82 and you've walked the puppet too slowly. Um, he's not there. you have to improvise. Um, you, no, that's not really a good example. What, what I mean is um, if you're too, too loose, you can be too indulgent with gestures and find you haven't got time to do the gestures that you thought you had so i I normally do sort of pin figures of of shapes and things i need to get to by frame 64 he needs to be in that position or whatever um so you do need to you need to think ahead again talking like a a, a ballet dancer has to think has she got enough space to jump um has the a, has a piano player left enough time to get that hand you know, down to the end of the keyboard? You can be spontaneous and you have to let a puppet live, but you need to do the planning, which seems a contradiction. But um, it's, I think, I think what, what I was trying to say about the uh, spontaneity is if you're working with shadows and things, um, you could animate a puppet and it might not quite get into the light as you'd intended, so maybe you take six more frames to get into the light, which means you've lost six frames from the next next action. So you have to make the most of where you are. So you have. I think this is the joy of stop motion: is you are reacting to your environment, and you can't plan everything totally because you don't know how many exactly how many frames it's going to take to walk across a set or to hit a shadow or interesting story in Wind in the Willows we had two animators a scene we were allocated characters I was Toad and Ratty and um, there was another animator doing Mole and Badger and for example if there was a scene where Toad had to run into shot and shake hands with Mole you have to talk to each other <laughs> to say that Mole's hand will be extended at frame 124, so that I can plan Toad to get his hand to meet at frame 124. But if you don't talk to the other animator, you're left with Toad sticking his hand out, and Mole hasn't done it. <laughs> so you left. Oh, you have to improvise. So you have to plan. You have to plan with parameters, allowing. Mm that happen you know all sorts of things happen on the sets lights could blow and finish that shot um, so you maybe have to insert a close-up to cover that or or you get tired into the, the day or the puppet gets tired and believe me puppets do get tired um yeah. where it's hot in the set the puppets will lose their their um tension mm. all sorts of things can happen that get in the way when you're working on high profile things, sometimes the lighting takes all day and the the lighting camera will come to you at five o'clock and say, right, you're ready. Sorry, it's the end of the day and I'm knackered and I've got to do 12 second shot in an hour. So you have to plan, you have to plan the daily shoot. Um, You have to plan your area that you can access the puppet And that you can stand on concrete, you know, put a bit of carpet down on the floor, so you know, you're not going to hurt your feet. It's a physical job, it's not coal mining, but it's a physical job. When you're bending, I recommend swimming every night, that's certainly helps me. Um, And hopefully I've got a short film to start shooting at the end of the year. I might have to get stronger glasses <laughs> because, you know, the eyes get, get weak. And certainly, you know, five o'clock at the end of the day, when you've been looking at a monitor all day, your eyes are hopeless. Basically, you can't do enough homework. And I I do encourage people to use phone apps like I can animate. But please just do a bit of planning. Um Try not to copy famous animators, try and find your own voice. Um, try and make a story that speaks for you, and this is the whole thing. You you can make stories about your life that perhaps you're comfortable vocalizing in conversation, but you can make a, a film that's a metaphor about your situation, about your sexuality, your, History, your geography, your race, your ability—you know—you can. Animation is a metaphor, and you can say really honest things, and nobody will judge you in animation because it's just fitting image puppets got away with murder <laughs> with saying some terrible things, and yet who can who can be upset with the puppet? <laughs> a puppet? Love of latex. So yeah. I okay. would encourage you to
0: sorry, um, Sam. <clears throat> Quote that you've um, quoted before now is the the give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth or something along those lines is quite a good quote. Okay.
1: Yeah, Oscar Wilde. That's it. Thank you for that, Sam. Thank you for propping me. <laughs> the The full quote is: "Man is seldom himself when he speaks with his own voice. Give a man a mask, and he'll tell you the truth." Now this mask we can see in our everyday life can be alcohol it can be Facebook where people are very uninhibited it can be anything that it just piece of outrageous clothing and you you can be uninhibited we're not very good at talking about ourselves and probably it's not all that interesting but find that little bit of distance and that distance could be a theatre a film animation pottery and you can be uninhibited basically what animation is it's an externalization of our internal thoughts and fears and dreams and everything but you've got to because you're telling a story you have an audience you've got to be receptive to the audience Mm. and give them help (laughs) Tease them that's all right to tease them Um, and make them wait. (laughs) But they've got to be there with you. You know, like I was talking about Jen Austin, um, she teases the audience and you think, where is she going? And then she tells you. And a good joke, you wouldn't tell the punchline of a joke the first word. You have to tease the audience and let them think, okay, I'll tell you how to tell a good gag. Buster Keaton, the best gag I've ever seen in the world, is in a film called One Week, where he and his girlfriend have bought a house and the girlfriend's previous boyfriend is the baddie and he's sabotaged the plans of this house and they've made it and it's all wonky and uninhabitable, but they, they love it. And they bought a plot of land and um i think it was um they've given this plot of land when they get there if you turn the number upside down it's a different plot it's the worst plot of land ever they had to move it over a railway line and they're moving this house they stick barrels under it and it's the whole life is in this house and they get stuck on the railway line, and there's a train coming and it intercut with the train getting close and the whistle blowing and they're pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. The audience is, oh my God, get the, get the house off the line. And then they finally give up and just stand back, shut their eyes, wait for the sound that doesn't happen in a silent movie. And the train's on a different line and it goes right past us. And they breathe a huge sigh of relief. The audience go, oh thank goodness, and then the train comes the other way and just into the house. <laughs> um, and I thought in, in that 30 seconds the audience have been all over the place. There's, there's tension, suspense, drama, um, they're gonna get hurt, their house is gonna get destroyed. Phew, they're safe. Bang, they're not <laughs> and I think that that's what you that's what you how you work with an audience. You tell an audience what to expect and then pull the rug from underneath them okay you uh you surprise them um, and Keaton is brilliant
0: yeah i've uh, well we did a few silent movies um, we did a few silent movies here, and um, I'd not seen any properly before and it was um they are fantastic, and as we go backtracking a bit here we um going on about CGI and things and same with stunts back then they didn't have stunt people or special effects as such so a lot of things were very practical effects yeah those, um, and that gives it its extra bit of
1: yeah yeah Buster Keaton's famous most famous stunt is when the house falls on top of him mm. he's, he's in a hurricane um, and he stops for a moment, and there's this huge house behind him, and it's wobbling. And the, we, the audience, can see the house falling towards him. He can't see it. Which is amazing, because the audience is going, oh, my God! And this house is wobbling, and it falls down, and it falls down. He's going to get squashed. And there's this tiny window that he's standing, and he falls, he goes through, the, passes through the window. Now, that house weighed tons. <clears throat> there were aeroplane engines blowing it, so it could have distorted. He could have killed himself. And it's all done in one take. If there'd been editing, it would have ruined the effect. Yeah. And the fact that we see him walk in to the shot and stand in the place and stop, so he could have got that wrong. You know, But again, if you'd cut away or well, you'd got a CG house... No, you have to tell the audience this is the limit, this is the parameters of the stage. But God, I'm going to flirt these parameters. Um, You have to have a threat. And this darn house falling on top of him, it's a brilliant gag. Mm. Um, And it works every time. And you think that could have killed him. So it takes you out of the movie, but that's what it is, that's what movies are. You know, when you go and see a Bond film, you see Daniel Cray as James Bond. They tell you it's a trick, it's an illusion, it's an actor. Um, But we buy into that as we buy into animation when we see a lump of plasticine or a puppet or or something. And I think if we take that device, take that um, awareness away, that's when it becomes dull, I think. Mm. You still need to marvel at the trick.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, I've got uh, I've got one question that I was going to ask because we're coming to the, well, it's, it's past four now, but that's fine. Um, yeah. I'll ask, because of the delay, I'll ask if anyone has any other questions to stick them in the comments for us. But um, for, while we wait, um, yeah. one question I've got is, um, uh, how did you get into animation? So you've got all different uh so and other things as well, but how did you get into animation in the first place?
1: I, I did drama at university. Uh I was a bit of a fish out of water because everybody <laughs> wanted to be actors and were good actors. Um I was I fell in love with Shakespeare at university. I would daughter before, but you know, here we were studying him. And I really enjoyed, why does he choose that word and not that word? And why is that word in the middle of the sentence, not at the end? I I love the puzzle of Shakespeare. Um, and I sort of wanted to be an actor, but this voice is terrible. And uh, I never really learned to breathe and I can't do accents and I can't sing and I can't dance so. And I started working in theater for a few years as stage manager, which I love stage managing and this was in Manchester, and I got a job in the theatre in Scotland, on the train up to Scotland, in the TV Times or something, there was an article about the company Cosgrove Hall, and their series, Chawton the Wheelies. Now I'd just been living in a place called Chawton, and I had no idea that they were making this these animation there. And I wrote a rather conceited, arrogant letter, Eight pages to Mark Hall saying, I love children the wheelies, but I think I could get more performance out of them. Which is a terrible thing to write when I'd never touched a puppet. But you know, I had been performing at university and I I knew the you know, pauses and strong gestures and you know all that. And Mark said, Well, okay. When you're next in Manchester, come and do an audition. And there was a, a series in Rainbow, uh, Cosgrafal did several things for Rainbow. There was a series called Lines and Shapes that were basically cut out and danced around to music, but there was also a stop motion series called Ground Bricks of Swallow Street, which was sort of a Coronation Street um, character. Set up. It was a street and my bricks used to walk down. It was two minutes every episode of Rainbow. Um, and they were shooting that and he said, right, then puppet, walk her down the end of the street with her dog. And I had about six hours and they just looked it and they gave me a job. Um, it was quite smooth, the animation, they said. But I did something that I've never done again since. I walked her toe, heel, toe, heel, toe, heel. Nobody walks that, like that. You walk heel, toe, heel, toe. And I've never done it since. And, it, and I thought, oh, oh God, why didn't I feel that? Why didn't I observe that? Um, but they said the puppet wasn't wobbling, which was very good because um, we had no video feedback. But observation. They gave me an audition and I started work on, um, I did Grandma Brooks and um, I quite liked Grandma Brooks. Um, the characters were interesting. We had the first black animated character mm-hmm. in the series, I think. Um, and But she did a lot of walking and um, she was quite absent minded and she often walked down the whole length of the street but had forgot her shopping bag. So you had to walk back down again. That's good training. I tell you what, what, working on a series with no video feedback, doing 20 seconds a day or something, that's quite, you learn your, your skill then. You learn not to faff around. Video feedback today gives you the chance to finesse and get it right, but it, it makes you dither on wind in the willows on the tv series at least i seem to remember we had to shoot 23 seconds a day of decent stop motion sometimes with a dozen characters that you have to know what you're doing <laughs> i find, you know i work with a lot of students and the idea of putting your hands on the puppet at nine o'clock in the morning and animating is is unheard of um, but I like the discipline of a series. You have to shoot X amount of seconds a day. the whole series depends on that. You don't have rehearsal. You have the luxury of reshoots unless something technical goes wrong. You have to get it right. And I think <clears throat> that is the adrenaline that I, I enjoy in theatre. <clears throat> you have to get it right and there are times of course when you don't and you're stuck with that but um, and i look at some of the films and go oh god but anyway, it was right at the time
0: <laughs> um, I like. Uh, an any interview. other questions sorry i was just to say i like in an interview with um ray harryhausen where he said that someone commented on how well they liked his dinosaurs and how they loved how the tails swish and he admitted that the tail swish was to distract you from anything that he's messed up up the other end.
1: Yes, I think that's probably, that's that's, that's a good answer, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a question, um, um, Tom.
0: After you and then we'll go to a question.
1: I was just gonna say, Sam, um, I think what I have learned over the years, talking of Mr. Toad in Wind of the Willows, mm-hmm. is I look at him now and he's, so busy, he's so frantic, because I was loving animation, and I think if I've learned something now, if you compare Toad to Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky, what does one gesture that's very meaningful, whereas Toad was probably doing lots of gestures that maybe didn't mean anything, because I just loved animating, and I think I was frightened to hold him still. Stillness is part of animation, as mm. silence is part of music. And I think that takes quite a, a brave thing to learn to actually hold a puppet not moving. Sorry, and the question there, who's, who's it from?
0: We've got a question from uh, Rianne lowman uh, She was one of our she was our first Q and A guest, and um, she's asking what your favourite part of creating animation is.
1: The writing and the studio. I don't like post production because it falls to pieces or. It sort of drifts away from you a bit. I, I think basically I like the hands on. Hands on when you're writing, hands on when you're touching a puppet. Just when it's you and a puppet and a camera. It doesn't get better than that. Um I
0: think well no there aren't any other, other questions down there. I think we can try and wrap it up a bit now if that's okay. And um, it's yeah. um yeah. yeah. I'm sure I'm sure we can have you again in future if you if you're free, because we're, I'm going yeah. to try and the more, yeah. but it's um, yeah, it's been fantastic to have you. Um, and there's been a lot of really good stories and advice. And um, the way that you put everything is very uh, the way you can talk about things in a very beautiful way, I think. Um, um, but yeah, oh, it's been a pleasure good. having you. Um, uh, for our QA, Thank
1: good. You. Well, if. If there's any, ever any feedback, people can get hold of me on Facebook or anything. Fantastic. Um, and so. my, cat has, my cat has just arrived, telling me I've been talking to the computer too long. <laughs> <laughs> gonna, know, he's me? under the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's time for the walk, I think. He's had a ah. snooze in the, uh, on the route, garden. yeah, it's time for a bit of attention.
0: Okay, well, okay, that, well that's
1: been fantastic,
0: Thank you very much. Again. Been great. Thank you very much. And then uh, see you, everybody, next week. Thank you for listening to this Q&A podcast. We would like to thank Barry Purvis for speaking to us and the Animation Club for their hard work. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this podcast. Goodbye.